Thanks for joining us on the JX Today. Our starting point is nearly 100 years behind us. Here's Chelsea Rose to explain. You're listening to Underground History, a collaboration between Jefferson Public Radio and the Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology, or SULA. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and each month, sometimes more, we take a deep dive into little-known aspects of history in Oregon and beyond. Today's episode is part of our 100th anniversary series of the tragedy at Tunnel 13, which commemorates the attempted robbery of a Southern Pacific train deep in the Siskiyou Mountains on October 11th, 1923. And this resulted in the death of postal clerk Elvin Doherty, brakeman Charles Oren Johnson, engineer Sidney Bates, and fireman Marvin Singh. The heist was done by three brothers, and these would-be robbers turned murderers fled the scene and a multi-year manhunt ensued, led by investigators from the Southern Pacific Railroad and the Postal Inspection Service. And this was aided by Berkeley chemistry professor Edward Oscar Heinrich, who helped solve the crime through his innovative use of criminal forensics, which identified the culprits as Roy, Ray, and Hugh Diatremont. Our podcast series is just one of the collaborative and live and virtual events commemorating the crime this fall, all of which will be linked in the show notes. But today we are joined by some of our project partners to discuss the history and legacy of this crime and how it relates to the United States Post Office. Lynn Heidelbaugh is the curator of the Smithsonian National Postal Museum. Lynn, welcome to the show. Glad to join you today. And Melissa Queen is the historian for the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. Melissa, thanks for being here. Hi, thank you so much. So to start off, let's talk a little bit about how the U.S. Post Office is even involved with this story, and that's because mail was being delivered by trains. So I guess this is a natural progression from the overland delivery on stagecoaches and freight lines. But Lynn, can you talk us through a little bit about how the Postal Service kind of got linked up with trains? Um, Did they just add a mail car to whatever train they were cruising around the U.S. on? Um, pretty much so. Um, but beginning in the 1830s, the post office began to contract with uh, the new railways, and they were putting mail aboard those um, trains. And it wasn't until the 1860s did they put their own staff on board the trains as well. And uh, beginning just during and after the Civil War, mail clerks were opening the mail bags and starting to sort the mail en route because the mail volume was booming at that time, and they had to get that mail all sorted to different locations along the routes, and it all coincided with the spread of trains around the U.S. and trying to get those communication networks um, established and moving as speedily as possible. And these postal clerks, they're there to just, like you said, like figure out what mail gets off at what stop, not necessarily to guard the mail. That's right. They started off working um, in the 1860s with the responsibility of sorting the mail, um, and they would even take in mail along the route um, with picking up the mail. And they were probably some of the most respected of all postal workers within the post office department because they had an immense knowledge. They had to know all the routes. Um, They had to know all the stops on the routes and towns in between so that they put things in the right order. They were tested to get to this job, and they had to sort um, 600 mail pieces per hour to do that. And then they had to have um, periodic tests. Uh, If you wanted to change a route, you had to learn a whole different scheme of what all the stations were along that route. Um, And some of those, of course, didn't make much sense, too, of of how the geography was. So you, you had to know. And they really knew 
um, the timing of the trains. They knew how the, the feel of the cars were. They, they, um, their records would talk about how they knew that, you know, if you were going to go uphill or, or you were coming around a, a bend or something like that. They had to sort of move with the sway of the trains. Um, but they also knew that their job was um, not just require that knowledge, but there was also a, uh, an element of danger uh, to it um, because these early train cars were typically wooden train cars and they were put um, behind the engines uh, and the coal cars. So that meant that the mail corks tended to be in sort of a, a higher risk area uh, if there was a wreck. Um, but the trains were also carrying a lot of valuables, um, all those, uh, the cash that was in the mail um, and so forth that was making those uh, targets throughout the 19th and early 20th century to would-be robbers. Yeah, so the the train robbery that we're talking about on October of 20, 1923, some people have called it the last great American train robbery. We know that there was other robberies since, but was um, like targeting mail cars for robbery, was that pretty common? One of the dangers in addition to just how fire vulnerable they were to fire from the engines? Yes, it, it could be. Um, and much like any time there was a mail on the move, whether it was on a, a stagecoach or on these trains, um, robbers looked for opportunities to ambush uh, the transportation and, um, and take over um, and try to hold up the, the, the train or, or the stagecoach and um, grab the valuables that were on board. And these were everything from... They, uh, companies that were sending their large payrolls through the mail, through the registered mail, things like negotiable bonds and even gold. Um, so it was a uh, almost a crime of known schedules because the mail was on pretty much every train. There was a typically um, at least one mail car with with someone aboard working um, working with the mail. Um, in the case of the train 13 on, in Tunnel 13, it was a, a half-train car with one clerk, but um, they could be that, that full train car. And it was a, a scheduled and known um, thing that this train was coming, typically would have a mail car, and then therefore would have valuables. And so it was a crime of, of opportunity and almost like public knowledge. Yeah, that's... That's so true. So you're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange, where we explore little-known aspects of our history in this region and beyond. You can find us online at jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today I'm speaking with experts on how the U.S. Postal Service found itself embroiled in one of our region's most famous crimes. So these folks, these postal and uh, clerks probably, you know, you said were in dangerous positions, but did that lead to the establishment of the Postal Inspection Service? So, Melissa, can you kind of talk us through a little bit about that organization? Um, you know, to be honest, I didn't even realize that the post office had like a, a law enforcement arm. So um, can you tell us a little bit about that that department? Yeah, of course. So the Postal Inspection Service is actually the oldest federal law enforcement agency in the country. We were established in, on August 7th, 1775, because the minute we arrived and established a country, we were delivering mail as a means of communication, and people were constantly trying to steal this mail. So our main goal has always been to protect our employees of the post office and to protect the mail and investigate 
when robberies are occurring or when our employees have been hurt or killed in the line of duty. And so since this is federal and it's before the FBI and some other things like that, it's interstate and in some cases, well, in this case, I guess they even worked internationally. Is that common today still? Yeah, that is very common today. Our jurisdiction is basically wherever that mail has touched. So once you had train transportation, which is going to be taking that mail a lot further, it allowed us to then have that jurisdiction and that protection really nationwide, which is why we were very vital in a lot of these railroad stagecoach robberies and even your truck robberies and airplanes today. Yeah. And, you know, even though this organization was around for hundreds of years before this robbery, this particular crime seems to be really one of the the formative moments of this organization, according to some people today. So is that it, it just represented like kind of a more modern investigation? Or can you tell us a little bit about why this specific crime is really resonating with, you know, the Postal Inspection Service today? One of them is because of the forensic, the forensic aspect that came about with this crime, as well as the manhunt. This was the most expensive and the most extensive manhunt that the Postal Inspection Service had embarked on. Uh, one of the big things was bringing out wanted posters, not even just in the United States, but all of North America, Europe, and um, a few other countries. We had wanted posters in English, Spanish, French, Portuguese, German, and Dutch. So it was a very extensive manhunt. We typically were able to find people rather quickly, and they disappeared for months and then years. And it wasn't until a soldier in the U.S. Army made it known to postal inspectors that they thought they knew Hugh Dotremont, who had enlisted in the Army and had spending, been spending time in the Philippines. Yeah, that is so crazy that they that network. I I think I read over like two million wanted posters went all over the world, and so that that was successful. <laughs> yes, it was extremely successful. It was wanted posters that really brought the knowledge of Hugh, Roy, and Ray in 1927 back into the public. Once Hugh had been found in the Philippines, the Postal Service then sent out an additional 75,000 posters to try to find Roy and Ray. And that actually worked extremely quickly after they found um, Hugh. And one of the more notable aspects of this case, we did talk about this, it's tied to the forensics. And that was the involvement of Heinrich, the Berkeley chemistry professor. And he must have been paying attention to crime labs that were being established in Europe. And he was able to use this case to demonstrate how forensic science could you know, could aid law enforcement, but whose idea was to, was it to loop him in? Like somebody had to send this evidence to the university and this would have been like kind of novel. Was that the, somebody from the postal inspectors that were like, Hey, I've got this great idea. Let's, let's call this guy. Do we know? Well, I know that we were, I know that we were some of the first people at the site. Um, Riddiford, especially Charles Riddiford, one of our inspectors uh, was one of the first ones on site. Now how we decided to then contact um, a forensic expert. I'm not exactly sure on that case. Lynn might know a little about that. Yeah, because that yeah. led to the names. They knew the names of them at that point, right? Go ahead, Lynn. Sorry. Right. So, yeah, Heinrich was the one who had found um, the evidence when, when he was called into the scene. Um, they helped take a catalog of the evidence outside. But um, going back to the lab, he found um, one of going through the pockets of this pair of overalls that was um, on the scene, 
he found a postal receipt which um, had a connection to tracing it through the number. They connected it to the Eugene, Oregon uh, post office and was able to um, then trace that number to uh, Roy Dotremont and mailing to his brother Hugh. Um, so then they had the names. Um, but uh, Heinrich had also been able to just put together also from that um, set of overalls um, a kind of characteristic of uh, the, the build and uh, the demeanor of the wearer of that um, set of overalls. But it was that piece of this tiny little kind of crumpled and stuck in a pocket um, postal receipt that led them to names. Man, the post office is all over this case. <laughs> They're tied in in so yeah. many ways. <laughs> and speaking of that receipt, I, I mean, I don't. Do we know what happened to it? I know that at the National Postal Museum, you have some artifacts and documents and stuff that that relate to this case. So, do you, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I we've been trained uh, trace down um, where many of these primary documents are. There is a archive of uh, the archive of. Um, at the University of California, Berkeley, where Heinrich uh, was employed for years, um, has uh, some of his criminal cases. So there's definitely primary sources there. I haven't traced down whether that postal receipt is there, but it's not at the um, in the collection of the National Postal Museum. Although we do have um, one piece of evidence that was collected from the scene, and you can see in the crime scene photos, and that is the detonator that um, the Dotremont brothers used to try to open the door of the mail car. And um, we have that uh, detonator, which um, was transferred to us um, as a museum from the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. So there are various kind of uh, avenues through the decades that some of this um, evidence has taken. And we've had this uh, piece on exhibit almost since, um, pretty much since the museum opened in 1993. Um, and it's one of those uh, just kind of captivating items of you kind of wonder why does a museum have a detonator <laughs> when it has to do uh, with the mail? And um, it really is part of this very uh, sad scene of this holdup um, gone wrong and turned into murder. And it was when uh, the Dolchemonts had... Um, we're taking the opportunity to, um, while the train was doing a brake check just uh, at Tunnel 13, to um, engage uh, the, the engineer and the staff of the train. But they, as they approached the mail car, um, the railway mail clerk, Elvin Doherty, had um, closed the car door, locked it, and um, this was when the Deltramonts had um wired it with um, and attached uh, dynamite to it. And so this detonator was alongside uh, the tracks when the investigation uh, began. Um, And uh, it's now at the museum. And I want to ask another question about that. But first, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more Underground History.
And we're back. You're listening to Underground History. I'm Chelsea Rose speaking with Lynn Heidelbaugh and Melissa Queen about the 100th anniversary of the tragedy at Tunnel 13 and its legacy within the U.S. Postal Service. So, Lynn, you were just talking about the detonator that made its way there. So, uh, you know, one of the things that kind of started this robbery going very wrong was that they way overestimated the amount of dynamite they needed to blow the door off like so I'm assuming that the doors were uh, fortified because these these mail cars were vulnerable to robbery and all sorts of things but do you know a little bit about you know was that just like you know beginner's error or you know what happened that they just they blew the whole car up basically right um, yeah, it ended up um, blowing up the car. The car was still uh, within the tunnel um, somewhat, so that may have been part of uh, the reason of why um, the fire, the explosion got out of hand. Um, and although the uh, Roy and Ray were um, had worked in the logging industry and had been sort of a little bit knowledgeable about um, explosives, um, some of the documents say that their experience was really blowing up um, stumps, so <laughs> they very likely in the moment overestimated what they would need for something like a door on a train car, um, and that had those tragic consequences consequences of uh, igniting uh, that car um, and killing the, the clerk Doherty. And um, it probably it really destroyed everything in the car, um, along with the, the causing the death of Doherty. So we do have um, items of the mail that was reco- recovered uh, from the scene as well. Some of that mail was then sent on to postal customers when it was um, retrieved, and because that is one of the duties of. Postal Service, even though as sad as it is to take this uh, burned mail in this kind of in this tragic circumstance, um, the the work is to get the mail through to the customer. So it was so still delivered. Was, it was still delivered. Whoa. That which could be recovered was delivered with a note that it was uh, damaged in this uh, fire and explosion oh, uh, at Tunnel Thirteen. And some of those letters, I I think, have made their way to your uh, museum as well as the Southern Oregon Historical Society and maybe even the Oregon Historical Society. They they floated around. People have turned them in, I guess. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so a lot of um, individuals who some of those who've held the mail over the years have turned into a, a variety of uh, those organizations you just listed, listed and probably even more, but those mm-hmm. are the ones we've traced so far. So, Melissa, in talking about the way that this case really kind of shaped modern forensics and crime scene investigations, so how much of kind of establishing the modern protocols for, like, evaluating and approaching this type of crime did was, you know, thanks to the postal inspectors? Because I know that this crime, or I think, was also the first use of, like, aerial reconnaissance, like trying to find those folks as the, the three brothers as they ran away and were hiding, they had like, I don't know, helicopters or something? Or do you know a little bit more about, you know, how they approached the scene? So forensic wise, this was one of the first times that we're going to see some sort of forensic investigation, but you really aren't going to see a wider use of it until about the 1930s and 1940s, because there really wasn't technology available to do that. 
And a lot of that actually started when people were um, threatening presidents. That is actually when some of the first x-ray machines of looking at mail, trying to find bombs and things of that actually occurred. What we do know is that the main thing that it did is really started to bolster more security on trains. There were a lot of copycats, um, not even from the Dotremont, but from cases prior to that, which is a lot of reason why it became as violent as some of these robberies did. So you're going to see more clerks and more railroad staff being armed. And that's really what we're going to see a lot of this, not as much of the forensic side, because that technology really wasn't available. This was the first time that we're really going to see that becoming a commonality, or not even a commonality, but the first time we're really going to see that used. Uh, we've used a lot of handwriting analysis, though, and that was a major way how we were able to find Hugh was by using his records from the Army prior or versus some of his previously written letters from like 1920 and 1919 to see if this really was the person who had oh. been involved in the army and had been involved in this case. Um, and that we were using as far back as the 1800s, early 1800s, we were using things like handwriting analysis and that will continue. Yeah. So what about like on the ground techniques? Like, you know, like I'm just thinking today, like block off the scene, restrict access, collect, all, you know, have the little markers and take photos of the things on the ground. Was that kind of like evidence gathering happening or was it kind of a, just like a more primitive version of the way people would approach a scene today? It was definitely a more primitive manner of how they were approaching that. Um, because like I said, that technology really isn't available. Now today, um, the Postal Inspection Service is was the first federal agency to actually have forensic labs. And we still have some of the best forensic labs in the nation. Um, oh, so wow. we, this was definitely kind of a start to that. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of that kind of goes to, to Heinrich, not as much postal inspection, because he was, wasn't really a part of the postal inspectors and part of the postal inspection. But he really did help this case and help the postal inspectors to discover this is the Dotremont. That would have taken a lot longer without his help because we would have had to be looking at handwriting and other forms of trying to capture these guys and find out who they were. Yeah. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. You can find us online at jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today we're talking about mail delivery trains and tr crime scene investigations over 100 years ago. So, you know, this anniversary has brought together a group of folks, including the three of us, who have been pooling resources and researching and, like, thinking about all the different ways in which this this case has impacted, you know, I guess, you know, the modern landscape. And we've been looking at archival materials. You've been talking about objects that are in the museum collections. And we've been working with the Southern Oregon Historical Society, Shasta Division Archives, the Black Butte Center for Railroad Culture, Oregon Historical Society, and more. So, you know, we've even tracked down some of the descendants of the victims. And I just, you know, as both of you, I think, have been thinking about this case and, and um, 
you know, more than me for longer than me. This has really been, you know, the last couple months have been my first introduction to it on a deeper level. So are there things out there that you've been finding that are surprising you or things that you're surprised that we haven't found during this process, just kind of leading up to this? Um, Either one of you can jump in if you've got something fun to talk about. Um, I'll say what has uh, surprised me and what I've um, long questioned is is why this train and uh, why did the brothers believe that there were valuables aboard uh, this train? Did they have some kind of knowledge, which turns out to have been false, um, that this train would have had um, a substantial amount of cash or gold aboard they had believed? Um, so where did that come from, and um, why were they motivated, particularly for this train? Of course, it was that location of that, that stop um, at the tunnel just before it was making a, a descent and doing that brake check. But um, what was it that that attracted them first to thinking that this was a target? Yeah, so there's still more to learn. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. Melissa, how about you? Anything surprising or especially interesting about the case? You know, one thing that I have found extremely interesting was that there were five brothers, um, and one of them had actually died in Texas pretty quickly before Roy and Ray were found, Um, and that really also brought in other parts of the country into this case, like Texas um, and Oklahoma, to try to find these these guys. And it was because there was actually some proof that the brothers, Roy and Ray, were trying to get some word about what had happened to their other brother and kind of let themselves slip up a little bit and got caught in Ohio. Oh. And then, you know, there's very little on that, on that fourth brother and the way that he died. Um, That has been something that's definitely sparked my interest because they didn't seem to really care that much where Hugh had gone, but they seemed to be very cared about what happened to this other brother. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And, you know, and speaking of all the different ways in which we've pooled, you know, documents and all these stories together, um, we've also been working on ways to share that with the public. So, Lynn, do you want to talk a little bit about um, the effort, the collaborative effort to have a virtual exhibit and what that might look like and when folks can access that? Yes, we are um, working in the part of this collaboration to put some of these documents we found throughout uh, various collections, in particular working with the National Post Museum's collection, the Southern Oregon Historical Society, and the materials that uh, Melissa has found through the U.S. Postal Inspection Service um, and the collections at the National Archives from the Inspection Service. And those will all be online at um, the National Post Museum's website in a virtual exhibition that we are calling Tragedy at Tunnel 13, The Crime, the Victims, and Legacy. And we, as we pulled and pulled all those um, different primary sources, we're really looking at this kind of taking approach of uh, a visual essay that we are going to Um, allow uh, and enable um, someone who's looking online to explore and try to ask more questions uh, about uh, the crime and looking at some of these uh, reasons of why it was happening um, and looking at the individuals involved. 
and and so it kind of unfolds before them through these primary documents. Yeah, I cannot wait to see what you all have put together. So, Melissa, we've also got the post office uh, involved in other ways, including our local Ashland, Oregon post office through a pictorial stamp cancellation. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So my colleague, Dan Mahalko, who is a retired postal inspector and has come back to us um, on contract because... Nobody wants to leave us. Um, he uh, He's a fantastic artist. So years ago, he painted a an image of the robbery for um, a different project. And for this 100th year anniversary, he designed a special cancellation. It shows the locomotive coming out of that Tunnel 13 where it was halted by the brothers. And you can also see the front of the train, the tunnel in the background, and there are four stars surrounding the image that are representative of the four individuals that were killed in the robbery and the memory of those that we're honoring for this 100th year anniversary. And Lynn, you want to tell us a little bit about what a pictorial stamp cancellation is? All you listeners that are stamp nerds will totally know and are hopefully excited to get your stamps canceled. But for the rest of us, what exactly is that? Yeah, these are um, pictorial cancels are for special events. Um, so they are available for a short period of time, um, typically at a, a local post office. Like we said, the, the Ashland uh, post office will offer this uh, during the commemoration. Uh, and you have to bring a uh, stamped envelope with you. It'll be um, marked with this special um, cancellation in which um, Dan Mahalko has um, illustrated the, the train and um, given recognition to those who lost their lives in this tragedy. That's, that's great. So lots of ways for folks to get involved with all these different events. And that wraps up this round of Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and our show producers are Angela Decker and Charlie Zimmerman. Today, we're getting helped by Jeffrey Riley, the, the big guy with the Jefferson Exchange. Um, Lynn and Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your work and these efforts. Um, and we will have links to the websites and events in the show notes. Get your self-addressed stamp ready for that cancellation. And you can find this episode of Underground History and many more wherever you get your podcasts. And before we get to a break, I can give you more info on the event this week, our Underground History Live event. It starts at 5 p.m. at Ashland Hills Inn. There's no admission charge, but any food or drink from the hotel is up to you. There will be the commemorative postmark, a visual pop-up exhibit, a director's screening of Murder on the Southern Pacific, a documentary with Cammie Horton from OPB, and a panel discussion with experts around 6 p.m., The evening wraps up by 8 p.m. Full details at jeffexchange.org. And we're back on the Jefferson Exchange in just a bit.